You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The more I read the Christian public intellectuals from the middle of the 20th century, the more I believe in their almost prophetic vision. Writing 60 or 70 years ago, thinkers like Jacques Maritain, W.H. Auden, Reinhold Niebuhr really seem to have predicted the world we live in. And perhaps they can also help us to figure out a way around the problems that threaten us in the second decade of the 21st century. Foremost among mid-century public intellectuals in many people's minds are the so-called inklings, Hugo Dyson, J.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and of course C.S. Lewis. But Lewis's star shines so brightly that sometimes it blinds us to the other thinkers around him, and perhaps no one as much as Dorothy L. Sayers, one of the very few women associated with the Inklings. Despite her being a major scholar, writer, and translator in her own day, Sayers is mostly known today for her series of mystery novels and stories starring Lord Peter Whimsey. Our guest today would like to change that. Carol Vanderhoof's new book is an edited collection of Sayers' work called The Gospel and Dorothy L. Sayers. It's out now from Plow Publishing, and I'm delighted it's brought her on Christian Humanist Profiles today. How are you, Carol? Very good, and glad to be here. Well, most of our listeners are probably at least vaguely familiar with Sayers, but I think we ought to start with a brief biography of her. Who was she, and what makes her such an extraordinary person? Hmm, that's a big question. Um... She was born in 1893, which kind of makes her feel like a very uh, long-ago person. But actually, she um, she was a British author with a great deal of intellect, which she applied to different projects at different times of her life. So after she graduated from college, she started writing poetry. She wrote two books of poetry. Then she worked as an advertising copywriter in London. And she supplemented that income by writing her murder mysteries um, until about 1935 or so when she began writing stage and radio plays. Most of those had Christian themes, which was not not so obvious in her mystery stories. Um, as a result, but but these mystery stories were made her very popular in England at that time period. And and mysteries were um, the big new thing back then. Agatha Christie was writing, uh, G.K. Chesterton was writing, and it was basically the golden age of uh, murder mysteries. <laughs> so she was in the middle of it all, and um, she became a, a famous person. And as a result of her popularity, she was asked to lecture, write essays, magazine, newspaper articles, Um, During the war, she did a series of short radio broadcasts to the troops. Um, At the end of the war, then, she began to translate Dante's comedy from the medieval Italian into English verse. And um, so she did that in the last years of her life. And then uh, she didn't quite finish the third book, Paradise, but she passed away when she was about two-thirds through it in 1957. Perhaps what made her so popular was that she, although she was a scholar, she was not pious. She was never prim. Uh, her down-to-earth metaphors, her enthusiasm, I would call it gusto, um, and, and firm grip on the realities of life made her popular with real people and those in the church who could see the value of a popular defense of basic Christian doctrine. 
so um, as C.S. Lewis said, there is in reality no cleavage between the detective stories and her other works. In them, as in it, she is first and foremost the craftsman, the professional. And she always saw herself as one who had learned a trade and respects it and demands respect for it from others. So my book brings together her fiction and her nonfiction and her plays and and puts them all together thematically in an anthology so that you get a broad um, idea of of her her thoughts on a certain topic and and that's what makes my book unique yeah so you you have excerpts from the mystery novels and then you'll you'll riff off of those into the uh, the nonfiction and plays that that kind of address some of the same issues right Hopefully they do address some of the same issues. I, I think so, and, and certainly, <laughs> certainly everything else in those chapters fits together. I sometimes, I sometimes did not envy you uh, trying to to get some of these themes out of the mm. out of the mysteries, but I think you did a good job at it. It was it was not easy, but I enjoyed the work because I got to read those books over and over again, and they really are fun. I've only read a couple of them, but yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to talk about the evolution of her religious beliefs. Her father was an Anglican minister. She, as you say, would, would eventually be an important pop theologian. But she had a pretty rough young adulthood. And I'm wondering if there's a moment you could point to when she returned to the church, like if there's some inciting incident that that does that, or whether it was a long process without clear differentiation, which it is for so many people. Yeah, um, this is a, this is a, there are scholars who write papers on this topic. So it's not an easy one, and she didn't leave a lot of tracks, um, behind on, on, you know, um, her, her time of, uh, suffering, really. She, um, she, when she was still in college, we have some letters from her where she talks about needing to go to confession. So during college, she was definitely um, still in the arms of the church, you could say. And then um, in 1918, she wrote these books of poetry. And quite a few of the poems, I mean, one of the books, the title is Catholic Songs. Um, let's see, let me get it right here. Catholic Tales and Christian Songs. Um, and they really are. They are uh, poems about things that she imagines that Christ might say if he were living today, things like that. So so even after college, um, three years after college, she was still deep in um, thoughts uh, and, and, and uh, her faith really was important to her. Then she had some relationships um, that were difficult. Uh, she, they were men who just didn't return her affection. And one of these was a, uh, a Russian uh, novelist who came from a Jewish heritage. And, and he was an intellectual. He was uh, definitely her equal as far as um, genius is concerned. And, and his name is well known still today. Um, but the two of them really were like um, 
flint and fire, I think. And and he, as an intellectual, you know, was above the idea of marriage and children and all this kind of thing. And and that's what she wanted. She wanted. She was deeply in love with this man, and she wanted marriage and children. And and he wanted her to give up these values for the love of him. And so it really became he it, he was really a domineering um, part of her life in in that time, and it was emotionally exhausting, very difficult. Um, and and she she left him after a while, and but but it was a painful painful thing. And on the rebound, she. Uh, she took up with a very simple man who was a car salesman and had a child by him outside of marriage he it turned out that he was already married um and and i think she never really let go of her faith she she fought for her faith but in the end it was almost a situation of emotional abuse and um and she she stumbled and fell and uh and i think i mean this is my interpretation now like i say there's many people who who look at this and try to figure it out so um in my mind this is uh what i'm interpreting from the letters and things that are that are left behind um the the uh the cousin who fostered her her child um took care of him for her and she wrote many letters to her cousin and and these letters are full of sympathy and um she feels sorry for the child who will have to carry this burden for his entire life that he that he was born outside of wedlock so i think there was um sorrow but we don't have any um we don't have any concrete uh, evidence of her, you know, time of repentance and and um, turning around. In fact, um, she herself said that she could never point to a moment of conversion. She was raised in a Christian home, and um, she kind of wished that she had had one. She felt she had missed some emotion or fulfillment that would have made her a better Christian. Um, it, it, I think it was in 1941 that she was offered a, uh, a doctorate of divinity. This, she would have been the first woman to have received one, but she wrote back and said, I just don't think that I'm, you know, the one who should be getting this. And she said, I'm never quite sure that I really am a Christian or if I have just fallen in love with an intellectual pattern. So you can see her questioning herself. Even, um, even, even in 1941. Even I mean, she... in 1941, after she um, had written these marvelous plays. Um, but her biographer, Barbara Reynolds, points to areas of Dorothy's poetry that are indicative of much more than an intellectual ascent uh, to faith. So um, some of these poems are are just wonderful. And is it okay if I read a little bit of one? Sure, please. Um, this is from a play called The Just Vengeance 
It was written for the Litchfield Cathedral Festival in 1946, so this is the end of the war. Um, the plot involves an airman, a pilot, who has been shot down, and his spirit returns to his home in Litchfield, where he's shown the meaning of atonement, and his conversion takes place, and he then enters heaven at the end of the play. So this is this is at the very end of the play where the Christ figure is speaking to this pilot. Come then and take again your own sweet will that once was buried in the spicy grave with me and now is risen with me, more sweet than myrrh and cassia. Come, receive again all your desires, but better than your dreams, all your lost loves, but lovelier than you knew, all your fond hopes, but higher than your hearts could dare to frame them, all your city of God, built by your faith, but nobler than you planned. And that, you know, you read something like that, and you know that this person is has a personal faith, you know, the person that wrote this. So you can see that she got, you know, she, she marched forward in her life and, and wrote many times about um, contrition and repentance and conversion. And, and, but that's all we know. We, we have no, nothing concrete that we can point to that she left behind as far as a turning point in her life. I suspect that's that's true of many of us, actually, that it's this just kind of blurred narrative rather than something very straightforward. I think you're right. As I said earlier, she is best known to contemporary readers for her Peter Whimsey mystery stories and novels. And in fact, uh, as we've discussed, uh, this collection seems to be geared toward people who know her fiction and want to know more about her. How would you characterize those mystery stories? What what sets her apart from the other mystery writers of this golden era? Mm, wow. Um, well, okay. So I think she owes quite a bit to P.G. Wodehouse and uh, and this light um, sort of stage comedy uh, atmosphere. I don't know if you you also felt that from the ones that you read. I, I had not considered that, but it makes total sense. I mean, he even has this kind of jiving relationship with his mother. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and the mother is hilarious. The mother is really funny. Um, just this uh, total uh, flow of thought that is that is very disassociated. And then, if you really dig down into it, Dorothy has has. Uh, planted all kinds of kernels of fascinating things in in uh, this mother who otherwise sounds uh, totally off the wall most of the time. Yeah, so these these mysteries, they're not just dry puzzles, right? Um, she did write one called The Five Herrings, and um, that, that one, it depends a lot on train timetables and all this kind of stuff, which was much more um, uh, popular in that era than the kind of things that she was writing, which are more uh, personalities and characters and, um, and yeah, I think that the, the joy of her work 
is 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 very evident. She enjoyed it, and uh, it comes across in these mysteries. So, but but as she wrote them, as the years go by, she wrote twelve of these books using the same characters. Um, she becomes more and more interested in uh, in in making them human. They become more complex personalities, and um, although she was always she was always interested in that. In the very first book that she wrote in 1923, um, we find out that that Lord Peter Whimsey, who is this very funny um, character, was actually in the First World War and and is coping with um, what we would call today PTSD. He has bad dreams. He he suddenly thinks he's in the middle of the war, and um, and his uh, his valet, his butler, uh, has to help him out of it now and then, and um, and this these kind of human uh, personality traits become much more the focus of the books toward the end of the series, and the last book. Which is called, which was Busman's Honeymoon, is subtitled "A Love Story with Detective Interruptions." So it's much more like a modern novel um, with with uh, intense interpersonal things going on, and there just happens to be a body in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> On their honeymoon, so that's another wonderful one. I don't know if you've uh, if you've stumbled on that one, but that's a great book. I, I have not. I read Murder Must Advertise and Gaudy Night, and then I've taught okay. a couple of the short stories. I know I taught the Learned Adventure of the Dragon's Head. Okay, yeah, there there are quite a few short stories. I think I only included a a, a piece from one of them in my book, but there are like forty short stories just of Lord Peter Whimsey. And then there's a whole other series uh, of short stories with uh, a character named Montague Egg. Oh, Have you I don't stumbled on those? those? Oh, they're just lovely. And he's a wine salesman, and he goes door to door, and he stumbles on um, puzzles that he needs to that he solves for the people in the houses that he's visiting, and uh, he believes that the um, the kind of wine that people buy. Uh, tells him a lot about them <laughs> and what kind of people they are. <laughs> so, um, so it's these characters getting, you know, built up by this uh, wine salesman. They're very funny and and very wonderful, really. Just just lovely fun. Now, just on the opposite side, okay, the criticism of her works, her fiction works, is that some people say she was a snob. Because she peppers her work with all kinds of literary and classical allusions. And she'll throw in a sentence in French or in Latin and, uh, and refer to things that you've never heard of before. And it's because she was such an educated, well-educated person that, she, um, that she's expecting that you also have this education. She's not talking down to you. She's she's uh, she's having fun and you're included, you know. So um, so that's one criticism today of her work. There's a lot of these illusions that that 
today just aren't included in our in our education. Well, as you said, you you have organized this book mostly by thematic concerns. So I think we should probably just go through a few of her major themes. Our listeners should know there are way more of these than we're going to be able to go over in the time we have. Uh, so I'm just going to pick a few that interest me, and our listeners can buy the book and uh, find others that interest them. Uh, I want to start with work. What is Sayers's critique of her society's attitude toward work? Woo. Again, she wrote quite a bit about this. She was, um, she, she felt this was a really important thing, especially for the church. Now you're asking me about society, but she was criticizing the church's attitude toward work. So she was saying, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life, Right. So the working man comes to church, does, does, is he fed, you know, something that enriches that nine-tenths of his life that he spends outside the church, right? Right. So, so that's, um, she not only critiques society, she also was critiquing the church's role in, um, in support, in not supporting the vocations of the people in the church. So um, she wanted everyone to have work that they could be proud of. Good work, well done. Um, otherwise, she says, man is kept a prisoner inside the machine. And, and I mean, we know what that is today. Um, you have some job which is rote or that you have to do in order to support your family. And it's not necessarily something that you feel very good about. So um, the fallacy is that work is not the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something he does in order to obtain money and leisure, right? So if the church says, you know, go to work every day, you know, uh, do your job. Um, but she says, if, if the only reason you do it is to get money and leisure time, then that's just self-interest. It's just, um, it's not uplifting. So she felt that, that there should be a sacramental attitude toward work, that it could be done wholeheartedly and for the sake of the work itself. And in order to do that, you have to find your vocation, right? Whether it's to be a carpenter or to be a plumber or, um, you know, to actually work in, in the church in ministry or whatever. She said, you know, if plumbing, uh, if you have joy in it, if that's what uh, makes you happy, then that's the work you should be doing. Then that's the gift that God has given you. And she wanted the church to support those plumbers <laughs> in, in what they were doing because she said that's just as much a sacrament as, as being a minister or a missionary or something like that. She said this is what God has called this person to do, and we should respect it. I, I found myself wondering, This is I'm going to read a passage from her lecture, Why Work? Mm -hmm. There is, for instance, the question of profits and remuneration, 
We have all got it fixed in our head that the proper end of work is to be paid for, to produce a return in profits or payment to the worker, which fully or more than compensates the effort he puts into it. But if our proposition is true, this does not follow at all. So long as society provides the worker with a sufficient return in real wealth to enable him to carry on the work properly, then he has his reward, for his work is the measure of his life, and his satisfaction is found in the fulfillment of his own nature and in contemplation of the perfection of his work. So <laughs> th that goes along very well with what you've been saying. Um, I, I wonder if what she would make of the proposition that we should have a universal basic income that, that, mm. that, that given that so many of our jobs are being outsourced or, or automated, that society should um, give people enough to live on so that they can do the work, the unpaid, I guess you'd say, work that uh, that really fits their nature. Do you, th do you think she would go along with that? It's so hard to tell her politics. It is very hard, isn't it? Um, she almost hid, hid her politics deliberately because um, – yeah, she didn't want to get involved in questions of what she wanted. She was trying to express what she felt the church, um, you know, was the was the outcome of of the gospel. You know, where we what it should be. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's hard to second guess her because. Uh, She's always coming out with things that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, but sometimes I might, read her and yeah. I think, oh, Sayers was a socialist. And then, yeah. other, <laughs> then other times, oh, she's very, very conservative. Yeah, yeah. And so there you are. I mean, yeah, it's very hard. She says, um, we should no longer think of work as something that we hasten to get through in order to enjoy our leisure. We should look on our leisure as the period of changed rhythm that refreshed us for the delightful purpose of getting on with our work. Very different. So there you are. Yeah, yeah, and and of course for her, um, the creative work was what she was thinking of. Right? She thinks of uh, someone sitting down and writing a book because that's her work. Um, but she so also says he, that everyone should do the work that he or she is fitted for. Fitted for, yes. Yeah. And so she's saying that educators and parents have to help this student to find the work that they are fitted for, that find, find their vocation, you know. And once you find your vocation, she feels, you know, you'll be uh, – motivated and and you love your work you you love to do what you um what you do well so mm, it's very interesting <laughs> i don't know how realistic it is because they're you know don't we have to have some people that do things that they don't like to do I don't know. Well, I mean, that's why I wonder about universal basic income, because once, yeah. once all those, once all those low-level jobs and even mid-level jobs are are automated, I mean, maybe maybe you really could get a situation where everybody's doing the thing they're made to do, and um, mm. and you don't have to worry about getting paid for it. But I, I'm, you know, I don't even know how I feel about universal basic income, let alone trying to put words into Sayers' mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of tough. 
Well, I really appreciated what she had to say about forgiveness. She treats she treats the mm-hmm. concept with a great deal of complexity. What makes yeah. forgiveness so difficult to understand, to implement, and to accept, for that matter? Okay, well, that essay on forgiveness that I have in the book, um, I mean, like you say, it's it's complex, and I don't feel that she comes, uh, that she presents us a solution on a silver platter. And it's probably because that essay was written in 1941. And and they were in the middle of the war. You know, uh, Hitler was doing terrible things, and they knew it. And uh, I don't know if London was getting bombed at that point, but but it wasn't far off, you know. So so she writes an essay on forgiveness. Now, that's pretty pretty tough stuff, right? Right, yeah. Um, she's very clear that as Christians are, you know, we have to forgive if we expect to be forgiven. Okay. That's, that's a baseline, right? We can't make it conditional because we're not saints ourselves. Um, only God is in a position to do that. So the the quote from her is, we recall the Catholic teaching that confession, contrition, and amendment are the necessary conditions of absolution. It's very difficult to forgive someone uh, who refuses to change, right, Uh, to change his behavior, and that's why the Church recommends repentance. But she says that's not um, mandatory that we should forgive in any case um, from our end, but the the person who repents is easier to forgive than the person who doesn't repent, which uh, which makes sense to me. Another thing that she says, which I find very interesting, is that forgiveness does not wipe out the consequences of the sin. So, so you know, uh, if I break your china teapot that's been in your family for 500 years, right?, if I break it and I I am sorry and you, you forgive me, it doesn't restore the teapot. You don't get the teapot back. So um, the consequences of the sin, and in her life we have to think of her illegitimate son, who then you know she took she had to um, support monetarily and. Um, and think of his education and all kinds of things for the rest of her life. The consequences of the sin, even if she did feel um, forgiven, the consequences of the sin r- remain for the rest of her life. You know, it was she was not living in a society where um, the uh, the illegitimate son could be brought forward, and everybody would say, "Oh, that's nice," you know. Uh, he was basically kept a secret for in, her entire life, and uh, and and it was a difficult situation. I'm sure he had to but forgive her too, right? So he's, he I mean, he's had bearing to. The, the consequences. Yeah, and and there is a quote from him where he says she did the best she could. Um, but her, but Dorothy Sayers' biographer um, Barbara Reynolds who was a close friend of Dorothy's for the last, I don't know what, 14, 17 years of her life, um, after Dorothy died, 
this young man showed up on her doorstep and said, hello, I'm Dorothy Sayers' son. And she she didn't know anything about him. So that, okay, so that plays in, in my mind, to this um, idea of forgiveness. Dorothy, I believe, felt herself forgiven, and yet the consequences were still there. You still have to deal with the consequences of the sin. I like that a lot, because I, I think especially modern Christians tend to think of forgiveness as this kind of magical act, and, and she's, she's pointing out, no, I mean... There are things that can be forgiven, but it doesn't mean that it just goes away. Right. And and she says it it isn't even good if you pretend that it's gone away. And 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 I believe she's talking about Hitler and and what Germany is doing. Um and and she's saying we can't just turn around and walk away and say, "Oh well, that's done over now." we're going to have to deal with the consequences of this and and Germany will have to also. Um, And so what is our... And she ends with a question as far as I can tell. Um, I don't know if you felt that way too. I did, yeah. Uh, She she clearly has no idea what to do about Germany. Yeah, yeah. And and that, when you read the book and you read these little excerpts, it is a help if you check the footnote and, and look at the date of the excerpt um just so that you know where she was in the you know in the time period i think in our idolization of the people from that circle we we sometimes forget that they they you know they they all lived through the bombing of london and they all um most of them have some sort of material connection to world war one yeah. You know, I think we I think we forget that they're they're they lived in this very violent, very terrifying time. Yes, they really did. And um she uh at the end of her life uh, when she she okay, so the air raid siren goes off, right? And she grabs a book that she had on the table ready to um read the next time she had to go to the air raid shelter, which was in her backyard. She grabs Dante, right, the Divine Comedy, and goes to the air raid shelter. Okay, now think about this. She's sitting there reading this this epic um, poem about uh, repentance and atonement and judgment and and the bombs are flying overhead, right? She's well, sitting in an air raid shelter. Just an amazing um, picture. And it's no wonder that she felt called to um, make her own translation of of the Divine Comedy, which is which is what she devoted the the last years of her life to. Unsurprisingly, she also has a lot to say about the work of the artist, um, and she mm. she has this very interesting theory where she presents uh, the artist's work as trinitarian. I am fascinated by this argument, but I'm still a little confused by it. I don't have her here to answer it, so I'm hoping you can. Uh, how is the creative artist like the Trinity? Okay, well, she, okay, so what, you know, I come at things a, a little bit in a modern way. What problem are we trying to solve here, right? Um, she, she was reacting to the feedback that she got from her play, which is called The Zeal of Thy House, which she wrote for the um, 
Canterbury Festival in, oh, I hope I don't get this wrong, in 1937, yeah, 1937. And um, she had a lot of people come to her afterwards and say, what are you talking about? And she realized that they didn't understand the Trinity, that they, that they had no grasp that God himself had been born as a baby in Bethlehem and walked this earth, that, that Jesus and God are not two totally different, um, different gods, if you will. We all talk about the Trinity, but when you, when you give it hands and feet, there are a lot of folks that she felt did not see Jesus, um, saw Jesus as the victim of God, right? Um, and, and so she wanted badly to explain the Trinity. And, and a good bit of her life, she spent trying to explain um, the creeds of the church, which she felt many people just didn't grasp. So here she is. She's saying, um, how, she, she's trying to answer the question, how can God be three in one? Okay. And so she, she writes an entire book called The Mind of the Maker. And the whole book is trying to explain the Trinity and the, the, and, and the analogy that she uses is the, um, the writer's creative process. So there is, uh, where's that? I have a quote from, oh, here. Madeline Langle, in her 1979 introduction to The Mind of the Maker, puts Dorothy's idea, okay, very succinctly, now I'm going to answer your question. In art, the Trinity is expressed in, number one, the creative idea, the creative energy, and the creative power. The first is imagining the work. The second is making incarnate the work. And the third is the meaning of the work. And those three things are the work itself, are the, the book or the painting or whatever the artist is creating. And yet, they are three things, but they are also one. And this is the analogy that Dorothy's trying to use to explain the Trinity. You can't separate them from each other. Um, it's... I mean, of course, it's a faulty comparison to the to the unimaginable, right? Um, but it gives us a glimpse, and the glimpse is worthwhile in itself. Um, and this this book, I mean, okay, theologians just have a ball with this book. Um, they, for one thing, it's a woman writing, you know, in in uh, the early years of. The 20th century, and that's there aren't too many of those. So, um, so they do now and then start writing about Dorothy Sayers and her the- theology, which I'm not. I, I'm not an expert in. If you want to know more about her theology, um, you should read um, Laura K. Simmons, and and she wrote a book called Creed Without Chaos. 
and it's all about Dorothy Sayers theology, and and it's it's quite good. It's it's not thick. It's it's actually readable, and uh, I I think it's worthwhile for those that are really interested in getting deeper into uh, how she saw uh, things from a theological point of view. I I found myself thinking about her at Christmas because she says mm. she says that people uh, in our day. I mean, there, there's such a there's such a heresy is conflating the members of the Trinity, but in our day, we're much more likely to to see Christ as not part of the Trinity. And so right, not, exactly. Uh, but I went to a church on Christmas Eve, or I think it was the day before Christmas Eve, whatever, and the, the pastor called Jesus the creator of all things, and I thought, mm. well, you know, that's a conflation of the Father and the Son in the Trinity, and then, uh, then the, the ghost of Dorothy Sayers appeared to me <laughs> and said, you should just be glad that he's, he's saying that Jesus is in the Trinity at all. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And and Dorothy has wonderful, um, great stuff on uh, actually a bit of satire, talking about uh, all this. And it's in a in a uh, magazine article for St. Martin's Review called "The Dogma Is the Drama," and she she actually has this little snippet where she's saying. Um, She's 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 put together a little quiz for people, and she's saying, "Okay, what do you what do you think of this? And what do you think of this?" And then she's writing down, uh, obviously satirically, what the answers that she's getting. And she got a lot of letters. I mean, she was she, she this is, this doesn't come out of the out of her imagination. People really didn't understand that. Uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are are really one, and the Creator did walk the earth, and uh, and and that should make a difference to us. Well, speaking of the dogma is the drama, or the drama is the dogma. I can never remember which mm. one comes first. <laughs> uh, she again and again in her work makes this assertion that Christian dogma is inherently exciting, but that modern polite Christianity has made it boring. Mm. How can we make it exciting again? Yeah. Um, I mean, and it, what she says is that it's become, the story itself has become sort of shadowy and vague and um, unreal to us, um, perhaps because we've heard it so many times and and the language no longer speaks. And that was... That was why she was such a breath of fresh fresh air when she would write and use words that just hadn't been used before and uh and and in her play cycle um, she wrote twelve plays on the life of Christ, and uh the man born to be king is the name of the the whole they're they're published in one book. Um, which I believe Whippenstock has. Uh, and there are 12 plays of the life of Christ, and she has all the figures in these plays speaking contemporary English. Now, the funny thing is, now nowadays we read it, and it doesn't feel contemporary at all. But it was back then, in 1942, and um, people were shocked and horrified by these plays. They, it just it caused quite an uproar, because... Um, well, 
because the the soldiers were brutal and sure. they and and they did things that were nasty and horrible and vulgar and barbaric and she says this this is reality you know this is what really happened and she's she's saying we are watering it down we are not preaching it like it is god walked the earth and we cursed and spit on him and um okay so she does this radio play of the crucifixion right and she was asked to water it down and make it more reverent by the bishop of winchester and she writes this is her reply I am frankly appalled at the idea of getting through the trial and crucifixion scenes with all the bad people having to be bottled down to expressions which could not possibly offend anybody. I will not allow the Roman soldiers to use barrack room oaths, but they must behave like common soldiers hanging a common criminal. Or where is the point of the story? The impenitent thief cannot curse and yell as you and I would if we were skewered up with nails to a post in the broiling sun, but he must not talk like a Sunday school child. Nobody cares a dump nowadays that Christ was scourged, railed upon, buffeted, mocked, and crucified because all those words have grown hypnotic with ecclesiastical use. But it does give people a slight shock to be shown that God was flogged, spat upon, called dirty names, slugged in the jaw, insulted with vulgar jokes, and spiked up on the gallows like an owl on a barn door. That's the thing the priests and people did. Has the bishop forgotten it? It's an ugly, tear-stained, sweat-stained, blood-stained story, and the thing was done by callous, conceited, and cruel people. Shocked? We damn well ought to be shocked. If nobody's going to be shocked... We might as well not tell them about it. The scandal of the cross was a scandal, not a solemn bit of ritual symbolic of scandal. You know, and and that's the that's where Dorothy Sayers um, is valuable. She gives she gives things hands and feet and practicality and gusto and and chutzpah, and and uh, enthusiasm, and and that's what we need. We just we just need this so badly um, when we're thinking of the gospel today. Each one of us. I mean, those of us raised in the church, and those who are new to the story as well. Do we know how the bishop responded to that letter? She was able to get her own way, <laughs> and. Uh, and and we know that after well after those plays um she was put up for this doctorate of divinity because the uh the bishop of canterbury the archbishop of canterbury felt that that these plays had done more uh to evangelize england than anything in the last 100 years wow yeah. I mean, he's probably oh, yeah. right. I mean, those were big hit plays, right? They were quite something. And they were, I mean, it, it, before they were even aired, they raised a lot of hackles. Um, and, and some of the pious and orthodox sort of Christian societies were already up in arms because they heard that, 
you know, number one, Christ was going to speak on the radio. That had that had never been done before. And number two, he wasn't going to use the words of the King James Bible. So that was shocking. From the sublime to the ridiculous, Sayers worked in an advertising firm before she became <laughs> okay. a professional writer, I guess a different kind of professional writer. In fact, mm -hmm. um, one thing I learned from your book, I think, is that she came up with the the slogan, my goodness, my Guinness, yes, as well yeah. as that cool toucan advertisement that some of our listeners might have hanging in their basement. Yeah. The, um, the Another one was the Coleman's Mustard Club. And uh, this was a this was a big thing. Who's in the mustard club? And there were um, advertisements all over the buses in London and things like that. She was deep in that one. <laughs> but but even so, advertising does not come out looking good in either her fiction or her nonfiction. What is so awful about advertising? Mm. Um, she she feels there's something really pathetic about playing on human weaknesses, right? And that's what advertising is all about. It's it's getting you to spend money on things you might not necessarily need. Um, and the the way they go about it is to figure out what will um, play on your weaknesses. So she says there's there's four. Um, she talks about four different ways that that are used. One is fear. Um, uh, you know. Um, Beware of substitutes, right? You hear it all the time. Beware of substitutes. Beware of germs. Beware of everything. Um, uh, are you suffering from bad breath, right? <laughs> it, it's fear. Uh, so she says that they're trying to play on and trying to get you to spend your money because you're afraid of something. The next one she she calls sloth, which is an old-fashioned word for laziness. Um, frozen dinners, fast food, clothes that wash themselves, right? All the gadgets and machines. Um, so it's it's fear and sloth. The next one is greed. Greed. Um, buy one get one free. Um, uh, scratch off lottery tickets, right? <laughs> um, all those late night commercials for slicers and dicers that practically come with a whole kitchen free if you just buy one for 9.95. I mean, it's all the same today. All the all these things that she's um pointing out, uh it's all it's the exact same things are being used today. The fourth one was snobbery. She calls it snobbery. It's um uh, buy this because this actress uses it by buy that because uh buy this perfume because uh, this singer endorses it. Um, hostesses, she says, hostesses who kowtow to give their patties the air of distinction. You know, she she really was a writer, and uh, and and the way she writes is just it's it's not just funny. It also has a little um, prick to it, and we can we can certainly learn from what what she wrote way back then. You know, well, and I amazing. mean, I think that really sets her apart. I, there are other people in the 30s and 40s complaining about advertising, but I don't know. I've never read anything from the, that era 
that did it as thoroughly and brutally mm. as this. And I'm sure it's because she worked on the inside. Yep, yep, I am sure, too. She knew it inside out. I mean, she worked nine years in uh, Benson's, which I believe is still going. It's an advertising agency very well known in London. I still think the Toucan, my goodness, my Guinness ad is pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know what she'd think of that. It has survived to this day. <laughs> yeah, well. She says that one of the most powerful things about Christianity is that it's profoundly pessimistic. That's her phrase. I'm not sure a person could guess that Christianity was profoundly pessimistic by looking at American mm. evangelicalism. So, so what is she talking about when she talks about pessimism? Okay, um, I, I think you're right. Today we, we get quite a bit of the uh, prosperity gospel. But what she's saying here is that those who believe, um, uh, well, was it was it Dale Carnegie who said, every day in every way I'm getting better and better, and that's the way we should look at life and think of life. And um, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm quoting the right person. Sounds but, like it could be him or Norman Vincent Peale, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody during that time period um, that were basically saying that humans are evolving, that that progress is good um and and we could add today technology um you know everything's getting better and better right it's getting faster um we can do more things in less time we can do more with less energy all these you know progress things are getting better and better and actually if you believe that then you're going to be pretty depressed when you look around you and you listen to the news. There's just not a lot of of wonderful things coming out of the world today. You know, there's there are people that are working very hard and trying very hard to help others, of course. But she's saying there's plenty of barbarity and stupidity going around and that if you think that human beings are evolving upward um, and that progress and enlightenment is inevitable, you know, you're going to be disappointed because that's not reality. Reality is um, that human beings are born to, to sin. I mean, that we, that we all have the um this fatal flaw in our characters and and of course she was humble enough you know to see that in herself and um and so if you believe that human beings have this flaw and are always going to stumble and fall then you won't be so disappointed so so you could call that a pessimism this is what she's calling Christian pessimism, um, then you won't be so shocked and grieved. Um, well, let's say maybe you are shocked and grieved, but you're not astonished because you know that that um, this is the way human beings are and will be until, you know, that, that day dawns uh, that is coming, that we believe is coming. So... She's saying, um, and here's a quote 
um, there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of human personality. And you can never, as they say, make people good by act of parliament just because laws are man-made and therefore partake of the imperfect and self-contradictory nature of man. So you can't put your confidence in law. Um, I mean, you can't put your confidence in anywhere in anyone but God because we we are all sinful creatures down here. And that's what she calls Christian pessimism. It reminds me a little of that Chesterton story where Father Brown explains his ability to solve these crimes by saying, yes. well, you know, I've heard all these confessions. I know what's at the yes. heart of man. Yep. And and he says, I, I know it because it's me too. I could have been there. You know, I could have been in the situation, in the mindset. We, we're all human beings. And... Um, yeah, by the grace of God, there go I, right? One of her best-known essays is Are Women Human?, which argues mm. that women like men should be treated as individuals rather than primarily as members of their gender. Reading through the excerpt from that essay that you include here, I found myself wondering what Sayers would think about the current manifestation of feminism. Do you think she'd find things to cheer about in it? Mm. Uh, again, I, I, it's it's really hard to um, to figure out what she would say. I would say there's there's probably things that she would cheer, and there are warnings that she would give, just like she did in that uh, essay in, on feminism uh, that I put in the book. Just to give a little bit of background, her she went to college. Uh, went to Oxford at Somerville College, which is part of Oxford. And she finished her course of training in 1915. At that time, women could not get a degree from Oxford. Okay? So there were all these women going to college um, at Oxford, but, but they were not handing out degrees to women. So... It was not until 1920, five years later, that they retroactively began to give degrees to women, and she was one of the first. So she got her BA and MA on the same day that uh, Oxford ha held a ceremony and gave degrees out to these women who had earned them five years before and, and even before that. So then, okay, that's 1920. It was only 1928 that women got equal voting rights with men in England. So, so here's Sayers. This is Sayers, uh, you know, in her young womanhood, in her 20s and 30s, um, coping with a society where gender inequality was baked in, right? Uh, it's it was really tough, tough to get a job, tough to support yourself because the wages that were paid to women, I mean, does this sound familiar? The wages that were paid to women you couldn't live on, they expected that there would be a man in the household. So Sayers had to rely on a, 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 basically an allowance from her father for years until she really got into Benson's and uh, earned her you know, 
worked her way up. But um, so as far as female equality, you know, equal work for equal pay, she would definitely be, you know, 100% for that one because she lived it. She lived that problem. But when she's talking to these uh, this feminist group in this essay, it was a, originally a lecture, she says, now watch out, because she, you've got the right to vote now, right? She says, I think you, earn, you, you did what you set out to do, but she didn't want them to get all militant and, and start putting themselves up as better than men, because as far as she was concerned, uh, individuals are individuals. And some of them are good at writing, and some of them are good at math, and you're going to have women engineers and men engineers, and you're going to have women uh, child care uh, teachers and male educators, and it's all about human beings. The essay is called Are Women Human? And what she was trying to say is, look at us as human beings. Don't look at us as either women, as a class. You know, she just couldn't stand that because people were um, asking her for the women's point of view on this and the women's point of view on that. And she was expected to cough it up. And she hated that. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine her being in favor of what they call identity politics. No, no. And and the whole thing with um, chunking people up into classes, she really wait, I've got a quote on that one. Because this is this is today. Um, do do not let us run into the opposite error of insisting that there is an aggressively feminist point of view about everything. To oppose one class perpetually to another, young against old, manual labor against brain worker, rich against poor, woman against man, is to split the foundations of the state. And if the cleavage runs too deep. There remains no remedy but force and dictatorship. If you wish to preserve a free democracy, you must base it not on classes and categories, for this will land you in the totalitarian state where no one may act or think except as a member of a category. You must base it on the individual Tom, Dick, and Harry, on the individual Jack and Jill, in fact, upon you and me. Now, isn't that perception? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yep. And, and boy, she has a way of, of getting right to the kernel of something. And, uh, and, and that's what I love about her. Just amazing. I just love the way she baffles our categories when you when you try to when you try to put her into a, a category other than Christian and even there she baffles it right because she says <laughs> I'm not sure I am one she, yeah exactly she's just very exactly. slippery in a way that in a way that somebody like Lewis is not that slippery I think I right. think it's much easier to answer these questions about who C.S. Lewis was mm-hmm. um, so in in some ways I think that makes Sayers more powerful. Uh, not to put Lewis down, but I mean, when you're talking about her, you're probably always going to have to compare her to him, unfortunately. Yeah, and and it's lucky they were such good friends because there's an amazing, uh, there are amazing letters between the two of them. Um, Lewis thought that uh, Sayers would be known, you know, a hundred years in the future, not for her fiction. 
He thought her fiction would die, but for her letter writing, which he felt was was extraordinary. And you if anyone a few is in, of those here. I include a few letters. But if anybody really wants to get into them, there are four volumes published by the Dorothy Sayers Society. And um, they're, they're totally worth reading. And the people she writes to, it, it really is amazing. Charles Williams and, uh, and of course, C.S. Lewis and many others. Um, she wrote to a lot of young, young soldiers during the war who wrote to her with questions of Christian faith. And um, she couldn't stand people who wrote fan letters, okay? She couldn't stand that kind of thing. But she really took an immense amount of time with these young men who were on the battlefield, you know, um, really sympathetic letters uh, about faith. Amazing. Well, I assume you've read just about everything she wrote. So other than this book, which, of course, everybody's going to go purchase as mm. soon as they're done listening, where, where, what else, where else would you recommend people start? Um. Well, okay, so it, it, because she is so eclectic, it kind of depends on where your interest lies, right? Um, if, you, if you are a lover of fiction, then by all means, start with the first one, Whose Body, and, uh, and enjoy. And I, I envy you reading them for the first time because they really are uh, a joy all the way through. If you're interested in Christian drama... Um, I believe all of her plays are available from Whippenstock. Um, so you can get any of them, and they, they are worthwhile reading. They're not period pieces. And the, the plays are mostly in uh, poetry. So if you, if you are interested in poetry, <laughs> then, uh, then go for her plays because they really are amazing. Um, just her genius, you know. And I could talk for quite a while about the the uh, the plays, but and then uh, if you are interested in theology, uh, the mind of the maker is uh, the, her deep uh, book. I would say it is not easy reading, um, but if you enjoy a bit of brain work and don't mind reading one sentence over and over several times before you go to the next, then The Mind of the Maker is the one you want. Um, a little less challenging is uh, Creed or Chaos, which is a set of essays that she's written. And uh, and so they're shorter. And many of them started as lectures, so they are easier to digest. Um, yeah, I think that's that's what I would recommend go for what what interests you the most i've been steering this conversation so far but in the spirit of hospitality on christian humanist profiles we like to give our guests the final word what haven't we talked about so far that you'd like our listeners to know wow um i think we've done pretty well No, I maybe I don't can't really think of anything. She is just one amazing lady and uh 
and I'll be glad if my book contributes to more people reading her. Well, that book is The Gospel in Dorothy L. Sayers. The author, the editor, rather, is mm. Carol Vanderhoof. It's out now from Plow Publishing. There'll be a link to it on the show notes at our website, christianhumanist.org. Carol, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it today. No problem. I enjoyed it. And thanks for listening.